So the last thing that I made with my butcher box shipment was aloo chicken, and it turned out really well. One of my favorite things is to get the shipment and then open up the New York Times cooking app and see what I want to create over the next few weeks. It helps my creative cooking chops, and both my wife and I really enjoy it. ButcherBox offers a variety of high-quality cuts at an amazing price, plus they have exclusive member deals, and they also have their own recipes, although I am preferential to the New York Times app, but that's just me. And you can sign up today at butcherbox.com conspirituality and get their special deal. ButcherBox is offering our listeners a free-for-a-year offer plus an additional $20 off. So for that year, you can choose salmon, chicken breast, or steak tips free in every order for a year. Sign up today at butcherbox.com conspirituality and use code conspirituality to choose your free for a year offer, plus get $20 off your first order. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Hello, everyone. Welcome to Conspirituality Podcast, where we investigate the intersection of conspiracy theories and spiritual influence to uncover cults, pseudoscience, and authoritarian extremism. And I'll add to that tagline today how from the Supreme Court to Project 2025, Tradcaths are on the front lines of this year's war on democracy, and many of them bend the knee to a fringe cardinal named Carlo Maria Vigano. Dr. David Lafferty joins me today to help understand who this guy is and the weird network that spreads out behind his scarlet cape. Hello, David. Welcome to Conspirituality. Thank you for having me. I'm Matthew Remsky. We are on Instagram and threads at Conspirituality Pod, and you can access all of our episodes ad-free, plus our Monday bonus episodes through Patreon or Apple subscriptions. And I'm currently in the middle of an eight-week live stream series called Conspirituality 101 with plenty of resources and time for Q&A. It's free for all subscribers, and you can hitch a ride at any time because everything is recorded. Okay, so David, uh, you are a PhD in cultural mediations from Carleton University in Ottawa. You have studied conspiracy theory as both a scholar and an online commentator. You've written a fair bit for Where Peter Is, which is the progressive or pro-Francis Catholic media hub run by friend of the podcast, Mike Lewis. You're Catholic yourself, and uh, we've had a lot of good communication about the corrosiveness of the Tradcath movement with its emphasis on rejecting Vatican II, idealizing the traditional Latin mass and trad wife sexual mores, and how certain avengers in this scene will seemingly stop at nothing to troll Pope Francis's attempts at inclusion and cultural repair. So what else would you say by means of introduction before we get started? 
Well, I'd like to add that I'm a, a longtime conspirituality listener, uh, at least over the last couple of years. And I, I credit your podcast for providing me with uh, some perspective on what's been happening in the, the Catholic Church. So there's a lot of crossover between New Age and wellness culture and some segments of Catholic culture. And it's a lot more than people might imagine at first. I think especially these days over the, you know, the last seven or eight years, We've seen the development of a lot of cultish dynamics in, in Christianity and, and conspiracy theory has become pretty rampant. And uh, I guess we'll be looking at a little bit of that today. I think we will. And that means we can start with introducing our antihero. Uh, what's the 101 elevator pitch on Cardinal Carlo Maria Vigano? Age, nationality, his career so far? Vigano uh, is 83 years old. He's Italian and uh, he's had a, a long career as a diplomat in the church. Um, for a lot of his career, he wasn't very well known uh, to the public, but around 12 or so years ago, he started popping up as, as a presence in some news stories surrounding the church and surrounding uh, Vatican politics. So let's go back to 2012. Vigano first comes to prominence during his role as the Apostolic Nuncio, which is kind of like the chief diplomat to the U.S. After letters of his, which were written prior to his appointment, are leaked to the press. And the letters alleged financial corruption in the Vatican. Yeah, those letters, um, they marked the, scar uh, the start of what became known as the Vataleaks scandal. Of course. And it's it's called that uh, because at the time that the WikiLeaks organization was in the news fairly often. This is, I find interesting to note because we'll see that Vigano tends to be involved in events that somehow mirror the larger stories that are captivating people at the time, particularly on the internet. And I won't go into the, the details of VataLeaks because it, it's pretty complicated and, and somewhat tedious in the end, but I remember trying to figure out what the substance was when this happened, the substance behind the, the whole media storm and just getting the feeling that in the end, it was a lot to do about very little. There was this aura of conspiracy and scandal. But I think for most people, it was you know what we'd now call a, a nothing burger. And, and I think in retrospect, looking back at it, um, the most significant thing about it was that this was really the first appearance of Archbishop Vigano in his role as a, a whistleblower at the, the center of a, a media storm. And that would repeat down the road. So he establishes his role, if not, you know, his you know, facility with evidence or content or things like that. Yeah, whether it was intentional or not, it happened. And for, we can say that maybe he he found that he liked this <laughs> this role, this attention. Uh, yeah. Right. So in 2016, Vigano resigns from the Nuncio position. What led to that? In reality, the the reasons were mundane because all bishops have to present their resignation from service to the Pope at the, at the age of 75. That's the mandatory retirement age. Now, the Pope doesn't have to accept uh, the resignation. But Vigano, in his case, he submitted his resignation, the Pope accepted, and that was that. But given the scandals that 
had seemed to surround him. It's probably likely that his resignation was gladly accepted by the Pope. I should mention that his resignation also came after Pope Francis's visit to the United States in 2015. And there, uh, another media blow-up occurred when uh, Vigano managed to maneuver Pope Francis into a meeting with Kim Davis. She's the, oh, no. yes, the, the county clerk who became a, a culture war figure, a kind of, you know, Fox News figure for um, refusing to, to issue marriage licenses to, to same-sex couples. And it seems that, that Pope, Frank, Pope Francis was angered by this. He didn't want to get involved in those kind of divisive politics during his visit. And so I think Francis possibly had that reason as well to, to look forward to, to Vigano's uh, resignation. So the story continues in 2016 when there's a 2014 memo that comes to light. And it suggests that Vigano actually quashed an internal investigation of one Archbishop Neinstedt of Minneapolis, who was accused of a pattern of sexual misconduct with men, including seminarians. Now, Neinstedt denied all of the allegations, uh, but the memo suggested that Vigano, quoting from the Nath National Catholic Reporter now, quote, ordered the actions against Neinstedt quickly shut down and its scope tightened and inhibited. At one point, he also allegedly demanded that the two bishops destroy a piece of evidence, a letter they had sent him earlier that month expressing disagreement with his decision. So did that have anything to do with Vigano's resignation or some of the buzz around it? And did he ever face scrutiny for his actions there? Yeah, so this case was reported on actually in the New York Times in, in 2016, but it, it didn't seem to really make waves in the, the Catholic world. It's hard to say, you know, if internally it may have you know pointed the way to um, an acceptance of, of Vigano's resignation or people were eager for him to resign after this. Um, it certainly blew up to some extent in 2018 after the accusations that we'll, we'll talk about um, regarding Pope Francis. So Vigano at that time certainly faced scrutiny by some in the press, but it didn't seem to make much of an impact on those who supported him. Um, but I think it does add some important context, though, for, for those trying to understand uh, Vigano's later uh, actions. So he's demoted after his resignation to titular Archbishop of Ulpiana, which is an ancient Roman city uh, now in Kosovo. And I, I just have to ask, like, is Francis trolling him in that case, like um, as in appointing him to bishop of the distant past? Yeah, it seems very fitting. Um, but in this case, Francis wasn't actually trolling. Um, Vigano was was made the titular Archbishop of, of Ulpiana uh, in, in 1992 uh, by John Paul II. Uh, and that was at the same time that he entered diplomatic service for the, the Vatican. So I, I think this was probably given to him as a kind of traditional or symbolic move because he was set for a, a sort of roving career in Vatican uh, diplomacy. Um, but yeah, in, in retrospect, it does have a, an interesting symbolic resonance. Essentially, he's, you know, without portfolio, he's, you know, the bishop of a place that uh, really no longer exists. <laughs> 
<laughs> so, so there's no, uh, there are no congregants. There's nobody that he's giving orders to. He's not, um, you know, consecrating bishops himself. He's, he's not. It's really symbolic, right? I believe so. I don't, I don't know if there, if he has any real connection to the uh, to the area. So I think at this point we get to the every accusation is a confession stage in this arc because in 2018 you you reference this briefly, Vigano accuses Rome of what he had been accused of just two years prior. So in August of that year, and I'm reading again from the National Catholic Reporter, quote, a former Vatican ambassador to Washington has published an 11-page letter filled with accusations against dozens of former and current high-level officials in the Catholic Church claiming there was a systemic cover-up of allegations that now former Cardinal Theodore McCarrick was sexually abusing seminarians. Archbishop Carlo Vigano uh, Vigano, sorry, who served as the Holy See's chief diplomat in the U.S. capital from 2011 to 2016, also claims that Pope Benedict XVI had placed unannounced sanctions on McCarrick, barring him from celebrating Mass publicly or traveling and ordering him to a life of prayer and penance. In an unprecedented broadside by a Vatican diplomat against a sitting pontiff, Vigano then accuses Pope Francis of ignoring the imposed sanctions and calls on him to resign in order to, quote, set a good example for cardinals and bishops who covered up McCarrick's abuses. So this really sets off a firestorm. Is that fair to say? It, it set off a, a huge firestorm. It was hugely significant to me. I had never seen anything like this happened in the, the church before. But it, it was a, a firestorm that I think was at least partly fueled by other cultural events and influences that were lurking in the background. So there's the Catholic abuse crisis, which of course has been in the news since the 1980s, and, and that was part of it. So that really lurks behind anything to do with the church these days. There's just no getting past the um, the shadow, I think, of, of the abuse crisis, which, which is really still ongoing. Right. But this was also 2018. So Trump had become president. Right-wing social media was really buzzing with conspiracy theories, as, as anyone who was on Twitter at that time would know. Pizzagate had happened. QAnon was just getting into uh, full swing. And there, this idea of pedophile elites and the need to bring them to justice was really in the air, that uh, it, was, it was time to uh, take down the powerful who were, uh, who were facilitating this. And so at the same time as well, there was a lot of growing conservative discontent with Pope Francis and, and that had been growing over the last couple of years at the time. And then the Cardinal McCarrick case hits the news. It was interesting when it hit the news because in some ways it wasn't all that unusual a case from the, for the church. Like, I mean, Cardinal McCarrick was uh, a very uh, famous figure within the United States, especially. But, uh, you know, we've seen this pattern before, sadly, in the in the church. Um, and and the, but the reaction among conservative Catholics was was really unusually intense, I think, you know, and it was just there was a lot of sheer outrage, a lot of calls for a, a sort of cleansing of the church, um, particularly of homosexual priests and bishops, um, and anyone who might have enabled McCarrick or, or covered up for him along the way. So it was right in that tense, very tense cultural moment, I think, that, that Vigano 
issued his his letter. And I think Vigano probably chose that very knowingly, knowing that this was the moment to uh, to do what he wanted to do. And he got a lot of traction because almost 50 American bishops indicated their support for Vigano at this point. And I'm wondering if that represented a kind of turning point in U.S. MAGA Catholicism. Certainly to me, it seemed like a turning point. When that letter hit the news, it, it took the conservative anger at the Vatican uh, and the Pope, which again, I mentioned have been brewing for a couple of years. It took it to a level that I'd just never seen before in the church, despite having, you know, I've, I've followed the, the abuse crisis as it's, you know, fallen out over a couple of decades. And uh, I'd never seen anything like this. And it, it, it seemed that all the anger regarding McCarrick had been, had been, or was being directed onto Pope Francis specifically, and even anger for just collective anger for the abuse crisis in, in general. And there was, like you said, uh, a lot, a shocking amount, I think, of uncritical support for, for Vigano publicly among uh, some American bishops. I thought that when it happened, it, it felt like seeing the scapegoat ritual being played out uh, in public with the Pope as the the scapegoat. And in part because the evidence that Vigano presented was not very convincing. It was confusing about these, these accusations that Pope Francis had somehow relaxed restrictions on Cardinal McCarrick when it, when it was fairly obvious, I think, to most people that Pope Francis wouldn't have really known much about Cardinal McCarrick uh, or probably didn't you know, know much about the restrictions that had been placed on him beforehand informally. So it, it, it really felt like people were venting and they weren't all that concerned about whether or not Vigano's accusations made a lot of sense. And I won't accuse any bishops of this, but I also think that some Catholics thought it might present an opportunity to get rid of Pope Francis and to bring in someone more to their liking. They knew that, you know, it's possible for a, a Pope to resign after Pope Benedict had resigned. And maybe they were hoping for uh, a quick resignation of Pope Francis and to move on to uh, a Pope that, that they preferred. In the end, the McCarrick report that came out later showed that Pope Francis was really not to blame for anything to do with McCarrick, uh, anything really directly. And, and Vigano had been uh, misleading in his uh, representation. So on one hand, there's a, a campaign, an organized campaign to pin the blame, you know, where, you know, I think reasonably it might belong, where the buck stops at the, at the head of the church. But the bad faith of that is that what is driving the accusation is not Francis's involvement in that aspect of the, of the, of the abuse history, but the fact that he's actually liberalizing the church and provoking a number of his conservative opponents into this frenzy around, well, it's because of these liberalization, these progressive policies that, you know, corruption has entered into the holy doors. In the past, when stuff happened in the church, you know, people would, of course, I mean, stuff concerning abuse happened in the church. Uh, revelations came out about, uh, uh, especially in the early 2000s. You know, there was there was a, a lot of anger, a lot of anger, but usually Catholic media, people close to the church would would not sort of 
isolate the Pope and make them, you know, fully responsible for what happened. There was much more of a tendency actually in the past to defend the Pope, to, um, to try to show that, you know, a lot of this stuff was happening without the Pope's knowledge. And, uh, in the case of Francis, it was almost the opposite. It was to take everything and place it on Francis. Even though the McCarrick report later showed that the problems with McCarrick started much earlier and probably had more to, to do with John Paul II's um, inability to see the problems in McCarrick and to to you know put a break on his on his rise. So yeah, I think there was a very different dynamic this time around. And it's not that it's, of course, it's legitimate to uh, be angry at the Pope. He is, like you said, the the head of the church, the buck stops with him. He has to take responsibility for abuse in the church when it, when it happens, um, when it's revealed. And Francis does, um, he, he, or he has uh, done a fairly good job at this. At the same time, there's, I don't think there's any place for a, a sort of irrational anger where the Pope becomes a sort of scapegoat for everything that's happened. Speaking about scapegoating, uh, the National Catholic Reporter goes on to say in that article, quote, beyond uh, his factual claims, Vigano's letter is laced as well with ideological claims about other Catholic prelates. He says one, for example, has a pro-gay ideology and that another favored promoting homosexuals into positions of responsibility, unquote. So, According to Vigano, part of his attack on uh, the the seat of Rome is that, you know, according to him, there's a plague of sexually abusive gays in the church leading a phalanx of corrupt wokeism. And so this is right in line with a kind of revanchist purity culture and moral panicry that, you know, tend to offload Catholic sexual neuroses and abuse crises onto marginalized people. And it goes way back into conspiracy theories involving the presumed demoralization of the priesthood following Vatican II. So is that is that on point? Absolutely. That, uh, that idea of this grand homosexual conspiracy within the church, that's a really key idea that, uh, that's drawn from the, the worldview of traditionalist and uh, ultra-conservative Catholicism. It's been around for a long time, at least since the the 1970s after uh, Vatican II and the rise of the traditionalist movement. It appears in the the Vigano letter, like you said, it's, although it's a little closer to the end, he starts out with asserting particular facts and then it gets a little more conspiratorial as it goes along. There's a, a really telling passage that when I first read the letter stood out to me where he says, quote, these homosexual networks, which are now widespread in many dioceses, uh, seminaries, religious orders, etc., act under the concealment of secrecy and lies with the power of octopus tentacles <laughs> and strangle innocent victims and priestly vocations and are strangling the entire church, end quote. So it's right there that you hear I think the influence of this really classic conspiracy language. Along with all of its projections as well, because it can't be that there's anything about his own repressive sort of aura that has anything to do with this, right? No, and it's all, yeah, it's all cast upon implicitly the the sort of more liberal um you know uh priests and bishops within within the church 
even though if you if you look at the abuse crisis, it, it does not seem to be a liberal versus conservative problem at all. <laughs> right. um, and there's notorious cases on on both sides. And again, when we're talking about liberal Catholic bishops, these are people are not all that liberal compared to, um, <laughs> you know, uh, people in other denominations, they spent a lot of their careers during the, during the time of John Paul II uh, and Pope Benedict, who were, uh, you know, very strict on doctrinal matters. So again, it, it just, it just seems like an odd sort of myth that just keeps coming back, but it's, it's, it's classic conspiracy thinking. It's this idea that there's a particular group of people who, who who look like anyone else, right on the outside, but on the inside, they're they're evil, and they all work as part of a cabal. They have their octopus tentacles reaching everywhere. That octopus image is, is just has been in conspiracy theory for a long time, and they're strangling, you know, all the the goodness that that exists. And when I read that for the f- first time, I, I knew that this was someone who, and again, I tried to keep. Some, somewhat of an open mind, you know, regarding the accusations. I'm not, you know, I didn't dismiss them completely out of hand. Um, but I knew that we were also dealing with someone who had adopted or was beginning to adopt that paranoid style that uh, Richard Hofstadter once said was, you know, so characteristic of conspiracy theory and a certain form of like populist American politics. And I really think that should have tipped off more people when they read the letter. There was just a shocking lack of critical thinking when it came to to the Vigano letter. Everything in there and everything that was to come from Vigano uh, could have been predicted by looking at the rhetoric that he was using. I mean, it was pretty clear what kind of trajectory he was he was on. It's provocative in the sense that it hints at something difficult, which is that, you know, we don't have solid data and for obvious reasons. Um, but there is a consensus forming around about 40% being the number of gay priests who make up the priesthood population in the United States. And there are many reasons for this. A lot of them point back to the requirements and culture of celibacy. And of course, these priests can identify as gay men and, and they can disclose that to a, to a New York Times reporter anonymously when they're asked, but they can't live as gay men. And so... Vigano is doubling down on an old church pattern in a really opportunistic way, it seems to me, which is, you know, stigmatize gay people, don't let them marry, sustain a celibate priesthood where they will meet each other, put them in seminary dorm rooms together, and then clutch your pearls when they find each other in the shadows of, you know, shame and confusion and youth. So Vigano is pointing at a very difficult issue that is really close to many people's hearts, but he's pointing with a very crooked finger. I really like the way you describe the situation and this idea of <laughs> Vigano's crooked finger. Um, and, and that it makes talking about this difficult because homosexuality does play into this larger picture. And there's no doubt, uh, I think, that homosexuality is a major issue when it comes to the priesthood. There are many gay priests. It's likely that there always have been. And for young Catholic men uh, who don't see marriage in their future for, for whatever reason, the priesthood has always been the natural place to go. And some of those men, they know that they're gay, but then some of them, they may be denying it. They may be just confused about their sexuality. They may not want to face it. And so they embrace 
celibacy instead. But I think it's important to point out that, you know, even for those who are not gay within seminaries and within priestly life, there's, there's really not a lot of opportunity for normal sexual maturation as we would understand it today. So as far as Catholic teaching goes, there's, there's really no licit form of sexual expression outside of sex between married people. And even then it always has to be ordered towards reproduction. And so by, by definition, obviously it's heterosexual and that's one of the doors that's closed for these men who are looking then for, you know, what's my vocation going to be? Any other form of, of sexual expression at all is, is considered, you know, gravely sinful, no exceptions. So, you know, no masturbation, no erotic stories or lustful thoughts or anything like that. Certainly no pornography. So, the, the seminaries and the priesthood, they end up becoming kind of a, a hotbed, I think, of, of repressed homosexuality and then repressed sexuality in general. And then especially with the abuse crisis and the fear of homosexuality within the priesthood, there's also often an emphasis on priests or uh, seminarians avoiding what are called like special friendships, like getting too close to other priests so that because there, there may be a risk of something inappropriate that, that could emerge from that. Oh, okay. So basic heteronormative alienation amongst men is just ratcheted up to, you know, a, a religious level. Yes, absolutely. And it, and I think that includes like priests who, who are uh, gay and then priests, even priests who are straight, right? Like it affects, it affects both. Right, right. And, and then those, those tensions find their way out right so in all sorts of unhealthy ways and i mean i know that some people might be skeptical of this this idea of like repressed sexual tension finding expression but and because it sounds very freudian right but i I really think that within this kind of purity culture that you have um, within seminaries and the priesthood that's exactly where these freudian sort of dynamics come into play and there are some scholars like mark jordan is one who's who's delved into this a little bit ellis hansen but uh yeah these these tensions can i think they can cause in some cases um a a sort of splitting of the the personality where you get the the pure and the impure at war within the same person this seems to be a common trait among abusers you get the you know virulent anti-homosexual campaigners or to turn out to be gay in the end you get the priests who live double lives that's a very you know talked about problem the sort of the double life um, that can blossom within the priesthood where you have like someone who kind of goes between their suburban parish where they're the good priest and the the gay bar uh downtown and so I think the abuse crisis is a product of all of this, but not of homosexuality itself. So homosexuality itself has not been shown to be linked to sexual abuse of minors. There was a a very big report that was conducted, the John Jay uh, study in in the U.S. um, that showed there was no connection between homosexuality and abuse of minors. But I think it can be linked to this whole tangle of immature and repressed sexuality that gets mixed with, you know, it's just a really toxic stew, I think, of, of you know, power, resentment, isolation, and then this culture of secrecy. This mix, it really does include Catholic doctrine on, on sexuality because that um, leads to, um, I think, a kind of 
lack of sexual development or lack of sexual maturity uh, in some cases. But the key, though, I think is that a lot of this is not entirely conscious. It's not organized in the sort of way that Vigano imagines, like a conspiracy. So it's it's the dynamics in clerical culture that, that breed this abusive behavior, not homosexuality itself. And, and the cover-ups are the result not of a, an organized network of gay priests who are, who are doing all of this very consciously, but it's just a, a secretive clerical culture that really fears scandal above anything else and will always instinctually protect itself against the outside world. We've seen that over and over again. I, I should say just to, because I'm, I'm being a bit of a downer when it comes to the, the priesthood here, but I should say that there are many, many good and well-adjusted priests like who, and, and some who may happen to be gay, um, who live celibacy wonderfully. They're just like anyone else. Um, but I do think they are living within a, a clerical culture that has some major problems that it hasn't come to terms with yet. So our man is really touching at a raw nerve and not just touching it, but also rubbing it in a really cursed way. <laughs> I think that begins to become more evident as the timeline goes on. We get to July of 2020, and he pens a letter to Donald Trump. Uh, and it's super agitated. Uh, what the hell does he say in that letter? Yeah, this is uh, another important Vigano moment. So um, just before we get to the, the the Trump letter, I should just briefly outline what happens in the, the interim after the, the 2018 letter. So Vigano, I would say, takes on, after this letter, um, takes on the characteristics of a kind of popular pseudo-pope, right? So he in all his letters, he's, he's really pontificating and in his interviews, he's using this very pompous, you know, antiquated language. He, he doesn't even sound like a modern Pope. He sounds like a 19th century type Pope. Awesome. Um, yeah. So he's, he's playing a role uh, and, you know, he's weighing in more and more um, on issues that are, you know, the typical stuff that causes controversy among, you know, traditionalists and ultra conservatives that hits Catholic media. And we see pretty quickly the development of this, deeply, deeply uh, conspiratorial worldview. So he, he's talking a lot all of a sudden about the ideas of Freemasonry having infiltrated the church uh, right up to the highest levels. He's talking about a Masonic effort to create a world religion for the new world order. And Pope Francis is all an agent of this effort. And, and then coronavirus hits, um, which affects everyone. And of course, a lot of conspiracy People go into overdrive when this happens, and 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 Vigano follows right along. So he he talks at first about um, coronavirus as a, as a punishment from God for abortion, for homosexuality, and and all that. But then he starts to link it to larger human conspiratorial forces. So he he really manages, I think, to to fuse a sort of nineteenth century. Catholic conspiracism, you know, with, you know, worries about Freemasonry and things like that. And this, this new mega conspiracism. And, and so when the letter to Trump comes out, it really seems like an effort to bridge these two worlds. And it, and it reads a lot like a, a letter, like that a, a Pope might write to a, a head of state. So it's, it reads like 
a letter from, in his case, anyway, like one spiritual leader to another in a way. It's, uh, <laughs> yeah, and and with all of these influences, I get this this sort of image of uh, a Vigano, almost like Senator Palpatine, playing this enormous organ, right, uh, where he can pull out all of the stops and he can draw on all of these bits and pieces of history. Exactly, and he's you know he. he he keeps, you know, he's mentioned that he's gone into hiding. So no one knows where, where nice. Vigano is really, but he just keeps, uh, you know, sending out these, these interviews and statements and letters. And um, so there's this just real aura of secrecy. It is like a movie. It really feels that way. Um, and, and this is, this letter is, is fascinating because it really hit me because I had been, you know, I've been following, uh, you know, QAnon Anonymous and stuff like that, like the podcast. Uh, and um, I've been following the QAnon movement and it, and the MAGA movement in general and seeing how the conspiracies had been developing within those worlds. And it really seemed like Vigano was, uh, I could tell that Vigano was kind of hinting towards this in some of his letters uh, and talk, but I couldn't draw any direct connections until this letter, it felt more direct. So in the letter, he explicitly connects his crusade to that of the, the MAGA movement at large. And he uses language that, that seems to echo QAnon and MAGA conspiracism specifically. So at the, at the very beginning of the letter, he says, quote, in recent months, we have been witnessing the formation of two opposing sides that I would call biblical. Biblical is italicized. The children of light and the children of darkness. And elsewhere, he italicizes uh, terms like deep state, deep church, and invisible enemy. Oh, boy. Um, and I was looking at these terms and thinking about how they resonate. And I really, I, it felt to me like biblical was like an echo of the QAnon slogan, it's going to be biblical, which is, comes from the film Law Abiding Citizen. And this light, light versus dark motif that runs all through QAnon rhetoric. Deep state is, of course, a, a, a Trumpian term that, that Vigano connects to the deep church. And then invisible enemy is actually a term that, that Trump uh, used for the, the coronavirus. But uh, it came to represent a sort of larger conspiracy in the, the MAGA world. And so with this, he scores this real coup because that letter winds up in a Q drop. Yes. So the, the letter, the link, a link to the letter appears right away in this June 6th uh, Q drop. Um, and then it's reprinted over the course of two Q drops after that. Um, and then finally, like almost like to end the process here in, in a June, there's a June 29th Q drop where Q or whoever is writing uh, for Q incorporates uh, Vigano's language into his own. And he says, and this is, again, a quote from the Q drop, quote, we are living in biblical times, children of light versus children of darkness, united against the invisible enemy of all humanity. With that, I think it's mission accomplished for Vigano. So Vigano, with that, he made himself part of that world. He, he managed to, uh, yeah, like you said, score a real coup. Trump uh, ended up sharing the Vigano letter on Twitter. And then on uh, June 29th, Michael Flynn, you know, one of the great heroes of the QAnon world, he writes an op-ed for the Western Journal where he uses the terms children of darkness and, and children of light. So it's, yeah, now Vigano is, is right in the midst of all of this and his language is starting to fuse with their language. They're posting. They love it. Uh, they're cutting and pasting. And then we fast forward to February of 2021. 
and again, we have another letter, an open letter, this time to all priests, urging them to disobey the Pope and public health officials if their conscience dictates it. This is in relation to the coronavirus. But he also seems to wish death upon Francis. Is that about right? Yeah. So in, in that letter, uh, it's uh, from, from January 31st, Vigano says, quote, it is precisely in order to defend hierarchical communion with the Roman pontiff that it is necessary to disobey him, to denounce his errors, and to ask him to resign, and to pray that God calls him to himself as soon as possible if a good for the church can derive from this. So this is, it's all wrapped in, oh, the most, you know, pious of language, but you can see very clearly the underlying aggression here. He's, you know, basically asking people to pray that God, you know, takes Pope Francis uh, from this world. Uh, in, into his loving into arms. Into his loving yeah, arms, I, yes. Yeah, I, I, I love Catholic <laughs> passive aggression, so stinging and bracing. I mean, and there's a side note, too, of, uh, oh, you made me do this, right? So around the same time, Vigano is starting to hang out with Steve Bannon. So tell us about that. Yeah, so he, he continues to, to work his way into that, into that world, the of American politics. And again, he probably um, connected with a lot of this when he was in the United States. He certainly, you know, adopts some of the language that would appeal to, to Bannon's audience. He, he has an interview with Bannon that's dated January 1st of 2021. And in that one, he brings up a, a conspiracy theory about the election of Pope Francis, you know, casting doubt on the legitimacy of it. And he manages to connect it to uh, one of the uh, Podesta emails from the WikiLeaks oh, stuff. Yeah, which is a nice right. touch, right? So it's quite obvious that he's red-pilled. He's, he's very plugged into all this stuff. He's, you know, gone through the Podesta emails and, 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 you know, read all this stuff, and he's and he's he's big into this idea that the uh, the twenty twenty presidential election was rigged, and I think he really sees these things as parallel the the twenty twenty election being rigged and the the election of Pope Francis being rigged. So again, we see this attempt to link Vatican politics with American politics, and I I think that was the larger purpose be, be, behind the the ban and interview and and behind a lot of his actions. European politics, which you think he would be maybe more interested in, just doesn't offer him the same kind of opportunities for you know publicity and notoriety and influence that the culture war politics for the U.S., that sort of apocalyptic mega politics uh, offers. Rounding up, David, according to Pew Research, Pope Francis enjoys an 80% favorability rating amongst American Catholics, but that might be lower than his favorability amongst American bishops. Now, of course, you know, the church is not a democracy, but the purse holders do have to keep their eye on public opinion. And so I'm wondering, do you think that the Vigano effect will grow or fade in this election year? I think in some respects, Vigano does seem to be fading away into his, um, you know, corner of the, the Catholic fringe. Um, I, I find that his, uh, I've, I personally, I've stopped paying attention to some of his statements because they now just feel very repetitive and predictable. They've lost a lot of their shock value. The, the Catholic conservative mainstream pays virtually no attention to him at this point, which is fine, but I wish they would have, you know, uh, taken a more critical approach much sooner. And I wish they would maybe admit that they should have. Now that said, he still has, uh, the attention of, 
more conspiracy theory minded uh, Catholic outlets, some of them pretty influential, like uh, LifeSite News. They report basically on everything he says and does. I think the Vigano effect will last, though. You know, he Vigano basically said what was considered unsayable in the mainstream church. And he really opened uh, a Pandora's box, I think. There are plenty more pseudo-popes in the church now, especially on social media, pushing as far as they think they can go in their anti-Francis rhetoric and finding lots of allies within the MAGA movement or within larger um, you know, global populist and, and, and right-wing movements. And, you know, some of them, you know, like, like Bishop Strickland, they've become, you know, real darlings of the, the American right over the last little while. Um, that's all part of Vigano's legacy. He's not solely responsible for what happened. I think that this movement towards populism and conspiracism was going to enter the church and become a very big thing with or without Vigano because it was following developments in politics in the U.S. and around the world. Um, but I think he certainly furthered that along. Um, and it's hard to know what will happen now. I think, you know, Trump is even more, seems to be more unhinged. He's, he's even more like a religious figure to some. I think that, that some of the Vigano rhetoric, the, uh, you know, the children of light versus the children of darkness will still play a big, a big role as we, you know, um, head towards the election. All that said, there's a lot of ordinary Catholics, the ones who don't pay much attention to Vatican politics or to whatever the latest thing is in uh, Catholic media that everyone's angry about. And they, they just, they love Pope Francis. They don't seem very susceptible to, to MAGA rhetoric or, or to, to Vigano's rhetoric if they've even come across it <laughs> before. Again, it's, it, there's a lot of, there's a huge range of people who would call themselves Catholic and would look up to the Pope potentially. So um, there may be, you know, more ideological storms to come for sure in the in the church and in the world. And, and, and some of these might cause a lot of damage. But I'm pretty confident that that in the end, you know, these people like Trump and Vigano, these these accusers, um, they, they won't come out on, on top. David Lafferty, thanks a million for shining some light into this crypt. I hope we can get you back on to uh, cover, let's say, the launch of Bishop Strickland's new live stream show on Twitter. Uh, it'll be running right after Tucker, I think. I think Elon is developing an app for exposing the Blessed Sacrament. Um, it'll be great, and it'll be great to hear from you. Excellent. Thanks so much. 